off with only a small section of a chapter left, so that's perfect for our remaining time. Don't worry, we're not going to go down a whole chapter here. That'd really be like trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant. But we will go to our study, and it's chapter 11 of Revelation, verses 15 through 19. 15 through 19. for this poor guy to load here. Come on. It's not one to load. And I can wing it, but it's not going to be as good, I'll be honest. (laughs) Come on. Okay, well, God willing, it'll load up here, but if nothing else, we can kind of walk through as we need to. You know, it's funny, as a pastor, there's two nightmares that every pastor has. Now, this is not a Sunday morning, so it doesn't matter. I can joke about it. One of them is getting sick to the stomach on stage, you know, where you just, you, you know, you end up getting so sick, you got to run out or whatever, you know, it's every. The other one is that you sort of, now, in the old days, it was paper notes, you know, now it's digital, but that you even lose your notes or, you know, that your iPad gets stuck or whatever it is. Well, at least it's not a Sunday morning, but it is, it's giving me some trouble here. No, it's not. Would you mind taking it out there? I'm going to go ahead and start. Take it out and see if it'll, if it'll load. It might be because of my distance. The Wi-Fi is trying really hard. Thank you. <laughs> so we left off, if you go back to chapter 9, um, there was the, the very end here. We, we left off with the 6th. Is it working now? Look at that. That's all it took? Fantastic. Thank you. Well, but it's... Yeah... Okay, I'm just going to have to, I'll look down real low here. It says no connection. Could you, could you take it out and see if it'll go back there? Well, let's try to take it off and try to reload it there. See if you could take it out, see if it'll load up. I could do it. I might need my magnifying glass. It won't even let me zoom in. Okay, so turn off airplane mode. That's right. That's right. So as we left off with chapter 9, we saw the sixth of the trumpets, but seven was delayed. Thank you. Is that right? That's it. And so ultimately, there's this this interlude, right? Chapter 10, verse 1, and all the way through what we did last week, 11, verse 14. And so we're basically going to end that sort of parenthetical sort of offset uh, to ultimately come back to this final trumpet, the seventh trumpet. And what we're going to see tonight is the end of history. There's no exaggeration there, no hyperbole. This is going to be the end of history as we know it. And, and I thought about this a lot as, as someone who's trained as a historian and someone who loves history. I've, uh, I've been fascinated with history. I can remember since I was about 11 years old, my father took me to this historical park, and, and I remember it being just really, you know, the impact of it. I took my kids there one time when we lived in California and sort of the impact of having that event. And so I went on to study it you know, in graduate school and ultimately, you know, spent several years of my life to it. So it's an interesting thought, like all of the energy and the, and the adoration that goes into history, but it coming to an end. Life as we know it, history as we know it. I don't know if there'll be historians and the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but ultimately, as we come to our text here, this is just that moment, the end of history and the beginning of a new era, ultimately, in God's presence. So let's look there, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the uh, uh, rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Final verse here, 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So this is just interesting, especially as we get to the very end. There's, there's this sort of two things going on here. All, all is dramatic. All, the, all of this is drama. And yet at the same time, there's, there's that, that which is coming down against the unholy and that which is coming down on this, for the saints. As we look at verse 15 here, at this final trumpet, a chorus of voices uh, rings out in heaven. That's a, it's a really glorious picture here. The, the, the message here centers on a, the dramatic arrival of God's kingdom. Who, who is the king of this kingdom? Christ, right? It's the kingdom of Christ. In fact, the language that he's using here initially is the kingdom of Christ. There's no, no contradiction here, whether it's Christ or God. Ultimately, this is, this is the kingdom of the Holy Trinity. And yet Christ is the one who is ultimately appointed here in this special way because of his work on the cross, because he conquered Christ will reign for forever and ever, the text says. And this is what I was talking about, where, where we come to the end of history, as we've known it. All the kingdoms of the world, uh, we, we prefer to call them countries today, same idea. All of the nations, all of the kingdoms, all of the, the countries, the peoples of the world will bow before Christ the King when he returns in this way. Everyone will see that this is not going to be some weird secret thing that happens over in the Middle East or in some part of Africa, but all of the world will see. In verse 16, the 24 elders fall down in worship. Does anyone recall who who these 24 elders are? Don't Google it. That's cheating. Honestly, it won't help you anyway. Go ahead. (laughs) Who, Who are these 24 elders? Anyone remember? Well, we saw them, it's been quite a while. We have to go back to chapter 4 when we saw them. Uh, well, we saw them the first time, and I think they've shown up at least once since then. Um, so really our first series after our, the seven letters. Uh, but the, we're not sure who they are, but there's two likely possibilities. One is that they're angelic beings. It's quite possible, and that's been popular, and some people have held that throughout church history. The other is sort of a, a two groups that come together as one, the 12 apostles, and 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So the 12 sons of Israel, and that would be 24. Uh, it seems that, that Daniel is referring to this same group in, I think it's Daniel chapter 7, but it's certainly it's somewhere in the prophet of Daniel where he refers to 24 figures in heaven. So that they're ultimately falling down. As grand as they are, as, as, as incredible as they are being in God's presence in this way, they fall down in worship, putting their heads to the, to the ground, paying homage to God. As we look at these scenes of worship, it really, it makes our worship seem kind of dull. You know, the celebration, the the grandeur, the glory that is there is so profound that they can't help but worship body, soul, and mind. As we look at verses 17 through 18, we get to the song, right? They break out in praise 
And it's a praise that's also proclamation. It's not just praise of empty words of, of glory or, or hallelujah. Not that those things would be empty, but, but there's a lot of content. They're saying a lot uh, in what they're saying. It's interesting here that instead of a vision, uh, ultimately John is going to use this song to describe what's going on. Usually it's been more visions, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, lots of these visions. But here he's going to basically do the same thing. But he's using this song, which in many ways is reminiscent of other songs that we see in the scriptures, uh, namely in the Old Testament. What are they going to say here in these verses? They, they praise God as the one who is and who was. You know, God is the Lord of all history. He is, he exists now, but he also was. He's also the God of the future. But is there somewhere else in scripture that this, this sort of rings uh, familiar as we think about this, the one, who, uh, the one who is, the one who was. I, I think back, I, yeah, I think it's very likely that John is glancing back at Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God says that I am who I am. I'm the one who exists. I'm the one who always exists. exists. I'm the one who is self-existent. There's a lot we could reflect on just in that, those, that language of the, the I am, that God is I am. This is a really powerful uh, proclamation here. At the end of verse 14, um, that, that brings up kind of an important question. Now I want to ask you, what does it mean that Christ now, if you look at the language there, he's now begun to reign at the very end of, of verse 14. What are we to think about this? What does it mean that Christ has begun to reign? I mean, hasn't, hasn't God always been sovereign? Wasn't Christ, even if we're looking specifically at Christ, wasn't he given all authority? After the resurrection and the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What are, we, what are we to make of this? Is John unaware of some of these things? Any thoughts? This is a question that could come up a lot as we go through Revelation um, because of, of the nature of what we're seeing. I mean, on one hand, to answer my own questions, the answer is yes. God has always been sovereign. Yes, Christ was given all authority. And we could say yes to all the other suggestions. Um, but, but it will now, with this moment, this end of history, the, the eschaton ultimately coming to its very end, this is now the, the kingdom fully consummated, made fully public, fully, uh, fully publicized, if we could say it that way. And it will be eternal without end. It's been partially revealed in our time. It's already true that Christ is Lord. It's already true that God is the sovereign one. And we as God's people live in that reality now. But the world, many of them are either oblivious to it uh, or resist it uh, or deny it. But not so here. It will be fully revealed. All will know. He will be reigning in sort of this public way. Any thoughts on that? It's, it's a really, really profound concept for us to consider. Any thoughts on that?
Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great, great thought, Glenn. I mean, it's, there's this interesting, mysterious, kind of like reoccurring theme that we see all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is indeed sovereign. I mean, he created this world. He sustains this world. Uh, and yet there's evil. There is, there's pain. There is loss. There's darkness. Uh, and yeah, we, we don't ever attribute evil to God. You know, we have to be very careful doing that. We know that God is, uh, there is no darkness in him, is what John says in 1 John. And so, and so but the fact is what we often see, uh, in fact, this is even going to come up in Revelation, that God has given the adversary some amount of freedom under God's sovereignty because God grants it, and yet he's free to disrupt and attack, and, but that's only for a time. And at some point, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, and that will come to an end. And so we're, we're seeing the end of that. So that's actually a great point, Glenn. I, I wasn't going to go that deep in that. But that's, that's really good because uh, we, we often struggle to understand how does that work. There are evil beings around us, demons, uh, our own evil hearts, right? We, we continue to, to struggle with, for those of us who are Christians, even as we're uh, saved and converted in Christ, there's a sense in which we have this lingering sin that we have to grapple with. But certainly for unbelievers, there's a sense in, in which evil continues on in that way. But not so after the kingdom comes in its fullness and after the judgment. We're actually seeing both of those here. Uh, this is sort of an outline. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this is sort of an outline of what we're going to see in the rest of Revelation. Bob, you look like you had a thought. Yeah. And well, and yeah, and John is echoing Genesis, right? So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot we could think about there. I thought I maybe saw another hand. Joy? Yeah. 
the, the language that the New Testament uses for Satan sometimes can almost, you know, it's a little alarming. It calls him the God of this fallen world, small g, right? Sort of the, the prince of the power of the air, you know, these, these ideas that, again, it's only within bounds. God doesn't, he doesn't have free reign to do anything. Look at Job. He has to go ask God, hey, God, can I afflict Job? And God has to give him permission. He doesn't have free reign, but he has a lot of reign. He can do a lot. Um, and so, yeah, that, that will come to an end. You, you really bring up a good spot. And I'll, goodness, I'll try not to chase this rabbit too much, but it's a really good thought. Um, and this is something that, that I think is really helpful, especially as you have friends. Now, word, word of just advice, very often your friends that are struggling with evil are not so much struggling with the intellectual as much as the heart. But sometimes they are thinking. Sometimes they do want to make sense out of it. Um, and it's Augustine who's the first one who makes this in a really clear argument. Now, there's certainly plenty of others in church history. But to say that, that evil is not a thing, it's an absence of a thing. Just like darkness is not a thing, it's an absence of a thing. Darkness is an absence of light. And so you don't create darkness per se, you, you sort of take light away and then you have darkness. And so there's this whole you know, explanation of understanding evil in that way. It's, it's as, as God pulls back, as God relinquishes, and ultimately there's this sense of ultimately evil as, as a result um, darkness in that way. So there's a lot that we could say there. There's a, there's a really good book. Again, maybe it's for yourself. Maybe it's for a friend. Um, this, is, this is a book that any, any believer, any, anyone who has, you know, seventh or eighth grade reading level, it's not even really high. I think just basic reading um, that's helpful on this is called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's, a, it's a real short book, 120 pages maybe, called The Problem of Pain. You could probably buy it for five bucks on Amazon. It's a really good book that kind of walks through how do we as Christians understand evil, loss, death, brokenness, and all these sort of things? Yeah. And we're certainly seeing that here on, on one hand, um, but it's coming to an end. Um, as we come to the, the end there, um, the song, there's a celebration of the saints, right? Um, judgment is coming down upon God's enemies here. Um, do you see those two groups? Look at verse 18. There's two groups here. The nations raged. They're, they're raging against God. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. So there's one group there. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. So God's people and the enemies of God. You notice this is like all throughout Revelation. Uh, and it's throughout the scriptures. There are these two uh, there are these two peoples. There are those who are in Christ in the New Testament, we could use that language, and those who, who do not have Christ. And so here judgment is going to fall upon them. They're raging against God. They resist his rulership. Again, even like we were talking about earlier, deny that he is the sovereign one, and yet judgment is coming swiftly upon them. There is a reward here for God's people. I think this is, this is so good for us to pause and think about this. Um, we have reward coming. You know, as, as we think about how, how hard it can be in this life, we're just talking about trials and all the challenges of this life. As we think about the difficulty of dying to self and, and living for Christ, um, of fighting against sin, uh, all the trials and even the, the challenges that we have in our own thinking and the questions we don't have answered, it can be hard. And yet we should remember here that our reward is coming. God will reward those who are his, the prophets, the saints. And saints, that's, that's the holy ones, all of his people, those who fear your name. He's clarifying what he said just before. And then he says both small and great. So, so sort of your, your great people of faith, your Apostle Pauls, your Billy Grahams, yes, but also those whose names are lost to history. The, the, the little, uh, the little um, elderly lady at the nursing home that no one knows 
other than the people who keep watch over her. Yet if she is in Christ, her reward is coming. And so there's this glorious picture here given to us. And it's something that we should remember as God's people. But there is judgment for the wicked. This is the third woe. If you go back to verse 14, you'll see there the second woe was passed and the third woe was soon to come. Well, this is it. This is the, the final uh, word of judgment here. We'll see this in much more detail later. As I said, this is sort of an outline to what we're going to see later in the book of Revelation. Now notice here, this is the judgment of the dead. I've talked to a church member about this recently. I guess you all were probably studying it in in Sunday school when it came up, and and she and I had a conversation about it. Um, You realize that all of our bodies will be raised to be judged. The evil and the saints. Those who are in God, in Christ, and those who are not. The, the wicked will be raised to judgment, and the, and the believers will be raised in their glorified bodies for this new kingdom, for the new age. And so this is assuming what we're going to see later about the, the resurrection. And, and we see that back in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 25. Um, and we, we see these same images there in the Gospels that Jesus describes. As we look at verse 19... A mighty display in heaven here. Thunder and lightning and and earthquake. And and those things always mean judgment and revelation. It's always associated with judgment in this way. Uh, God God displays here his wrath against sin. Wrath against those who would resist. By the way, if you you look uh, at the beginning of verse 11, the nations raged. That's Psalm chapter 2 language. Whether or not he's drawing specifically on that, you know, of course we don't know. But I mean, read Psalm chapter 2, the way that the nations rage against the sun. A really, really powerful image there in that psalm. But look here at the language that's used, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that interesting? The Ark of the Covenant. Uh, what, what does that represent? Well, I wish we had time. I better go ahead and just, just explore for us. Uh, it's, it represents God's presence. Right? Now, there is no longer a physical Ark of the Covenant. It's been destroyed by the Babylonians. It's been destroyed long ago. It's used here symbolically. No longer is the Ark of the Covenant, which was closed within the Holy of the Holies, it could be viewed by one person a year. Who was that? The high priest could go in once a year. None of the rest of the people could go in. But remember, we saw when Christ, uh, the crucifixion, the curtain is torn. No longer is that separation there. And now all of God's people ultimately have access to his presence forever. This is the heavenly ark, so to speak. Flashes of lightning rumbling, and yet there is the ark of the covenant that is seen in the heavenly temple. Not not a physical temple, but but temple being, again, God's presence. No longer there is no need for the temple, no need for sacrifices. Christ has fulfilled it, and and so on. And so as we look at um, Christ's return here in this final judgment... You know, if, if, if I hadn't already given it away, you're kind of running, well, what's in the rest of the book of Revelation? We got the end here, right? But basically, he's, he's laying out this outline here, and then he's going to give more detail. Sort of, uh, he's been cycling around. Remember, I'm using this sort of this, this fancy language of recapitulation, um, recapping and going deeper. There's, there's some sense of progress. You feel it, don't you? But he's sort of cycling around and slowly moving forward through it. And he's going to keep doing that. Uh, and then there's sort of going to be this, this, the highest point as we get to chapter 20, chapter 21. We're right here at 8 o'clock. Any, any final thoughts as we close? Questions, insights? I think there's a lot for us to just ponder here. The reward that is ours, 
the frightening judgment that awaits those who are lost and thus our sense of urgency to warn the world. Um, and yet the, the thought, the, 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 the groundedness that we should have, that Christ's kingdom is coming in its fullness, not in part, not in some hidden secret way, but in its fullness. When all things will be made right, all things will be settled by Christ himself, the great judge. And so it's a great word for us to close on as we think about the church triumphant in that way. Okay, well, let's, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we do rejoice. We thank you, God, that you are the king. You rule now. You are sovereign now. This world is yours. Earth is your footstool. And yet, God, as we've reflected on, Lord, we know that not all is made right yet. There are many things, Lord, that we struggle with and many trials in this life. And yet, God, we know that that is coming to a close. History, as we know it, is coming to a close. Oh, God, would you give us boldness to warn this world winsomely, lovingly, and yet, Lord, clearly? Help us, Lord, to hold on to this hope for ourselves. Lord, as we face trials, as we face temptations, as we face anxieties in this life, God, that we would have a sense of groundedness, that you are coming, your kingdom will come in its fullness. Lord, I pray that that would animate us and strengthen us as a church, whatever we might face, God. All the triumphs that we face, that we would glorify you, God, the trials that we would look to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you, have a great night.